This picture was taken on the September 11th, 2001. And in the background, you see the fallen towers. One of the artifacts or pieces that they found in the rubble in the days following the terrible attack was a yarmulke, a kippah. And Colonel Jacob Goldstein was given this yarmulke that was found in the rubble. And he tried, with the help of the FBI, tracing down who this yarmulke might have belonged to. There, there was an imprint from some wedding, but ultimately they were unsuccessful. Apparently it was just on someone's desk. There are all kinds of kippahs out there, head coverings. This is the custom of the Bukharian Jews, a real big knitted head covering. What kind of kippah do you have? Is it one like Jerry Seinfeld's? Kipa made of leather, I believe, sitting beautifully on his head. Welcome to Lunch and Learn. Today we'll be talking about Jewish head coverings. It's Rabbi Heshi here. And it's time to study Torah together as we do every week. We choose a topic, an individual, some idea, and explore it using traditional Jewish sources. And today's topic is the head covering. What's up with the kippah? What's up with head coverings? Why do we cover our heads? When should we cover our heads? And, of course, a dose of inspiration and stories to inspire us in 2023. Hello and welcome. As usual, we have a source sheet to follow along in today's lesson. We're going to start in just a moment. Let's begin with a blessing. Baruch Ata Adenoi. Good morning, good afternoon, Jody and Roy. Uh, this is a pretty interesting topic. I definitely did not know as much as I do now after looking in, doing a bit of research about the yarmulke. Some call it the yarmulke, some call it a kippah, or just a head covering. What's it all about? Where did it get started? And... What's up with it? So <clears throat> we're going to talk about that. We'll delve into some of the sources, the ancient sources. And interesting that this topic is not so clear cut. It doesn't say anywhere in the Torah explicitly to cover your he head. It's not one of the 613 commandments. And an interesting question is why is it only customary amongst the males, amongst the men, to wear the skull cap, this kippah, this yarmulke? Why not the women? Or maybe the women should ideally wear a kippah. So we'll hopefully touch upon this. This is a very vast topic in Jewish literature, but hopefully after 60 minutes or so, we'll emerge with a better understanding, a bit of a glimpse into this topic, and we're going to get started. So on this post, there is a link to today's source sheet, or you can t check your email inbox if you're all... If you are on our email list, after the lesson, these lessons get uploaded onto our podcast. You can find us there. And uh, let's begin. Let's study the Holy Torah. So, <clears throat> it's called a yarmulke. The word yarmulke probably is Polish in its origin or Ukrainian. That's the word yarmulke. We're going to touch upon uh, a bit about women's cover, head covering, but 
uh, just a bit. It's really a whole topic in, uh, in itself. So that's the word yamaka. It's also called a kippa. Why is it called a kippa? Kippa literally means a dome. So a dome, most kippas, uh, if they're not too small, are shaped like a dome, and that's why it's called a kippa. In Hebrew, kippa, kippata, kippata barzel, the iron dome is called in Hebrew, kippata barzel, kippa, and many other times the word kippa comes up. So we're going to understand maybe some deeper meaning to the names yamaka or kippa as we go along. So here we go with source number one. Again, today's lesson is divided into four sections. We'll bring up three ideas in the yamaka. And they're sort of interrelated, but we'll focus in on each one in, it, in, each, in its section. And then we'll wrap it up with the last section, maybe some more practical things. Hello, Michael, and hopefully Maureen. We are going to get started right now. Source number one. So, this is a quote from Shulchan Aruch, Code of Jewish Law. That is a book which is a basic in every Jewish home. It's the Code of Jewish Law. It was originally written about just under, I believe, 500 years ago by Yosef Karo. Of course, there are many additions to it and add-ons, but this is a book. There's an uh, abridged version called the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, but that's the book. That's our go-to book. That's like this is what we do day by day. It gives us the bottom line, but of course everything is based in the Talmud or Midrash or Zohar. So we're going to look at sources from all of these books. Hello, Mark. So here we go. Source number one: a quote from Shulchan Aruch. You want to know how a Jew behaves? You look in the Code of Jewish Law. What does it say? Source number one: it is pious conduct, not to walk even four cubits. With one's head uncovered. Now again, today we're going to be talking more about the men, but we will talk about women as well with their head coverings. So it is pious conduct not to walk even four cubits with one's head uncovered. So let's um, analyze the wording. Not to walk even four cubits. A cubit is about a foot and a half. So not to walk six feet with one's head uncovered. This applied even in the Talmudic period. This is even the Talmudic period. That's how, you know, uh, 1500 years ago. In our times, it is forbidden to walk or even sit bareheaded. So he starts off, it is pious conduct not to walk more than, or not to walk even four cubits, even a very short distance. But in our times, it is forbidden. It's not just pious conduct, you know, a nice, nice, good thing to do, an extra measure of being scrupulous, being extra, you know, holy, excuse me, but rather in our times, it is forbidden to walk or even sit bareheaded. So that's pretty uh, um, bold or pretty uh, strong language. So let's understand why. It is definitely Jewish custom for Jewish males to cover their head with a skull cap or which is a, a cloth made head covering or any kind of really head covering. Um, why? Where does this come from? Where does the code of Jewish law get it from? It's not one of the 630 commandments in the Torah. It doesn't say next to eating kosher or putting on tefillin and putting up the mezuzah and keeping Shabbos. It doesn't say and Jewish males should wear a skull cap. It doesn't say that. So where does it come from? Let's explore. The first source will be the Talmud 
Talmudic passages, source number two, Rav Huna. Rav Huna, his name was Huna. Rav is the typical way they were called in the Talmudic time, not Rabbi, but Rav. In Israel, they were called Rabbi, like we studied last week about Yochanan. He was called the Rabbi. In Israel, the term Rabbi was more used in Bavel in uh, Babylon, where the Jewish people lived, they were called Rav. So Rav Huna, Huna was the son of Yehoshua. Huna was a student of the famous Talmudic sages Abaye and Rava. Uh, passed away probably about the year 400 or so of the Common Era. And Rav Huna was a very pious man. And the Talmud says in more than one place, Rav Huna would not walk four cubits with an uncovered head, with a bare head. He said. Why does he behave in such a way that divine presence is above my head? God is not out there in heaven hiding in his palace. God is right here. He's right above my head. He's wearing the head covering, the yarmulke, the kippah, sort of as a sign of respect, of reverence, a reminder of God being there out of respect for God, maybe all of that together. Another source in the Talmud, cover your head so that the fear of heaven will be upon you. Sitting bareheaded makes one feel like there is no one above them. Or at least wearing the kippah can be as a reminder to the individual that there is somebody, there is a creator, there is a force that's greater than you, that sits right upon your head, not in some distant land, in some distant heaven, right here, watching your every move. He is right here above, helping us, supporting us, looking out for us. And that's what the kippah is. It helps us have fear of heaven. It's a respect and a sign of reverence for the divine presence, which is right above my head. That's what Rav Huna would say. Now the Talmud goes in another track, they're giving a story. Astrologers told Rav Nachman's mother. Rav Nachman is another Talmudic sage. Rav Nachman, the son of Yitzchak. And his mother was approached by astrologers. And they said to her, your son will be a thief. He was young then. And they said he's going to grow up to be a thief. So she did not allow him to uncover his head. She made sure his head is always covered. Not really telling him why. Maybe he didn't want him to have some sort of um, uh, lack of confidence or who knows what. Um, he didn't tell him why. She just told him always to be careful with his head covering. One day he was studying Torah beneath a palm tree and the cloak fell off of his head. He's sitting under a friend or some stranger's palm tree and he, which was, I guess, customary back then, and studying Torah and his cloak, again, he wasn't really exactly a, a keeper like we have. He was wearing some sort of uh, turban or some sort of, maybe like other people do in some countries, uh, Arabic countries that wear some sort of uh, cloth, uh, a cloak on their heads. Um, and he, as soon as it fell off, he was overcome by impulse and climbed up. He scaled that tree and detached, not easy to climb a palm tree, and detached a bunch of dates with his teeth. And then he realized what's going on. Maybe his mother explained to him as well. That's why he needed to cover his head constantly to keep that impulse, that natural um, attraction, natural urge to steal. He stole some dates from the palm tree, which did not belong to him, with his teeth. And he, he, it was such a strong urge and temptation that he needed to have his keep on his head, that even maybe subconsciously, 
sort of kept that urge in control. So here's a story which demonstrates how having a kippah really keeps us uh, reminded of God, keeps the fear of heaven in our lives, and hopefully impacts our behavior. So that is a couple of sources from the Talmud. One more, you know, the story of um, this man that's uh, going with his assistant and he's driving along the road and he sees this beautiful apple tree and he says to his assistant, I'm going to go get some apples. And his assistant says, well, that's not your tree. You can't steal. He says, no one's watching. You stand by. If you see someone watching, you call my name and I'll come running down and we'll speed away. And sure enough, he climbs the tree, looking around, and he sees nobody, and the assistant starts screaming, Someone's watching! He looks around, he doesn't see anyone, but he runs, climbs down the tree, gets into the, to the wagon, and they speed away. And then, after calming down, and seeing no, no one's chasing after them, he turns to his assistant, and he says, I didn't see anyone watching. And he says, I didn't say the owner was watching, or I said someone. You know who the someone was? God Almighty was watching. God Almighty is not up there in a faraway, distant place uh, resting from all of his work of creation. He is intimately involved in everything that goes on in this world, definitely watching and standing right here. Someone is watching and the keeper reminds us and that helps us have the feeling that our every action is impactful, is a being observed. As the Talmud demonstrates... In source number four, not actually the Talmud, it's called uh, uh, the later tractate, smaller tractates, Maseches Kala. Source four, the elders, the sages were once sitting when two young lads passed by. One covered his head and the other uncovered his head. Of him who uncovered his head, Rabbi Eliezer, one of the great sages, he was one of the teachers of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Eliezer remarked, he must be a Mamzer, in English, a bastard. Now, it doesn't exactly mean, um, he meant it literally, not as in a derogatory, um, you know, trying to make fun of them, fun of this boy. He meant that he must be a Mamzer. He must have been born from a, um, uh, illegal, illicit marriage. Now, I'm not sure how, what it means exactly in English. It's not just someone, a child born out of wedlock. It's a child born from a strange man, usually. So, it could be others too, but the word mamzer in Hebrew uh, comes from the word zar. Zar, zar means a stranger. A married woman who has a child from a strange man other than her husband. And that's what they were saying. If somebody has the audacity, somebody has the lack of humility to cover their head, and this boy uncovered his head, there must be that there's something um, off with his makeup, with his how he was conceived and how he was brought to this world in a not very holy kind of way. Um, and it's interesting, the code, code of Jewish law says it is proper to cover the heads of even young children. And we see in this story, it doesn't say how old they were, but definitely young lads, it is customary today from already the age of three years old, even before, but for sure from three years old, a boy, once he gets his upshare and his haircut and he gets his side locks, the payas, which we once did a class about, he begins to wear a kippah. Um, I mean, don't hold it down too hard if he throws it off, but he begins to get trained in wearing a kippah. Once uh, his hair is short, and it's probably easier, and it's time to begin educating him in the ways of the Torah. From a very young age, until a person passes and is buried, 
uh, traditional Jewish ways to bury a person with tachrichim, special burial, white linen clothes, and also a kippah, a head covering, is put on the dead body. So it really goes, um, you know, it's really up there, this head covering, something really special. And it shows, we see from the story, on humility, especially our heads, because that's where our brains are, that's where our logic is, and that's what's special about human beings, that we have a brain, and we, uh, different than other creations in this world, we can make decisions, and we can understand things, we can grasp, just look how advanced our world has become, especially in the last 200 years, using our brains, and you doing research, and figuring things out, we got some really smart people in this world, and our brain, as great as the logic and the intellect that we have in our brain is, above that we have God. We have the kippah, which sort of symbolizes that as great as our logic is, it is limited. It is merely a creation of God's infinite logic, infinite wisdom, and that's the kippah. It's that constant reminder that there is something above us, there's something much greater than us, and as the Torah tells us, source number five, you shall fear God. Now, how do we fear God? God is not so scary. He's a loving God. What does it mean to fear God? It means to have reverence. It means to respect God by obeying His commandments. How do we go about remembering God? He's not, he's not in our lives in a very revealed kind of way. You know, one of the great Hasidic Rebbes said, God, you made it difficult for us. You put all the temptations and enjoyments of this world uh, right in front of our eyes. And, or with the click of a, of a link or of a button. But God, holiness, spirituality, those kind of things, we, they, they're hidden in the books. We've got to learn about God. We've got to seek God, so it's very difficult. If you would have done it the opposite way, you would have put God right in front of us and spirituality and good things in front of our eyes. And in the books, they would talk about all of the good food and all the temptations and all the you know the bodily pleasures. Then uh, it would be a bit easier for us. So how do we remember God? So we need these reminders. Continuing in Source 5, apply your mind to three things and you will not come to sin. Know what there is above you. An eye that sees, a, an ear that hears, and all your deeds are written. God observed each and every one of the 8 billion, I think we're up to 8 billion people, what they're doing, how they're behaving, and what's going on inside their kishkas, what's going on in their brains, what they're thinking, what they're feeling. Everything is observed by God. There's an eye that sees, there's an ear that hears. That is what ethics of our fathers, the Mishnah tells us. So the kippah contributes to all of that. It helps us have our Jewish values of humility, of reverence and respect to God. And number six, so you might ask, so what about the women? And thank you, Jody, for bringing that up. What about the women? And thank you, Stan. Oh, hello and welcome. So seemingly, women would also need to have this respect and rem reminder and reverence. God is around women too, you know? She, he's above their head, or you might call him a she, call her, a, call God a she. Uh, so the truth is that Jewish women do cover their heads, at least married women, or a woman that was once married, and she's now divorced or widowed, uh, a Jewish woman has a head should have a head covering, whether it's a, a wig, a shaitel, or a snood, or a handkerchief, um, 
or a veil, something that is definitely part of Jewish tradition to have a head covering. And it's not the kippah per se, specifically this kind of covering. You know, back in the Talmudic times, I don't really think they had this kind of kippah. They had a head covering, some sort of cloak, some sort of veil, I don't know, some sort of head covering. Maybe a hat would, would suffice. Yeah, just a, just a head covering. Not to be bareheaded is the idea. The question would be about single women or girls, young girls. Why don't, why don't young girls cover their head as a sign of, of respect. So perhaps we'll, we'll uh, un- have a better understanding of it a little bit later. Source number six, but from a Kabbalistic point of view, um, the reason would be that without ritual, spirituality is too abstract for men to relate to. The feminine soul is more sensitive to holiness and therefore doesn't need as many reminders to express her soul connection. This is an idea which is recurring in Kabbalah, the deeper secrets of the Torah, that men and women are different in their bodies and they're different in their souls. They have a different kind of soul, not just emotionally and intellectually, but spiritually. They, ha- they possess a different kind of soul and there's, each soul has a mission and a masculine soul has its mission and each mitzvah is part of that mission so men have their mitzvahs and women have their kind of soul and their mission not that one is better than the other or more important it's just different missions both equally important and one i guess advantage of the feminine soul is that they're more in touch with spirituality and they do not need as many reminders so men being that the kippah is not just um, respect but sort of as a reminder for God. So, women do not need this reminder as much of the men. Men need rituals, they need this, they need to put on the tefillin, they need to do more things than women. That wraps up our first section. One idea in the head covering. Now, head coverings or kippahs became pretty famous in 1983. In October of 1983, let's see who remembers what happened. October of 1983, there was in Beirut, in Lebanon, a terrible attack where I believe 241 U.S. Marine, Marines were killed in a terrible terrorist attack. And there was a Jewish chaplain on site. He happened to be actually visiting, I believe, for some reason. And he got to work um, helping was, you know, in this terrible situation. His name was Arnold Resnikov. And in the whole tumult, in the whole um, aftermath of this terrible attack, his yarmulke, his kippah, went missing. He was running here and there uh, in the the rubble and the smoke trying to extricate um, wounded or dead soldiers, Marines, and his yarmulke went missing, and, and, and he was an observant Jew, he's a Jewish chaplain, and uh, he's not supposed to walk without it, you know, being bareheaded. So, a fellow chaplain, a non-Jewish guy, I believe he was Roman Catholic, cut out from a uniform, from the Marine uniform, a cloth yarmulke, and he was able to wear this yarmulke. It beca- this story went, uh, I don't know if it was called viral back then in 1983, but it really caught the attention of the media, and I believe Ronald Reagan spoke about it in one of his speeches, and this became um, 
a really special, a beautiful story where, where uh, I guess, uh, this Roman Catholic chaplain was there and respectful for his fellow uh, creating this uh, makeshift kind of yarmulke. And being that it got so much attention... Uh, it later was able to pass in, uh, they were able to pass the bill, pass the law that uh, soldiers, Marines, or other soldiers would be able to wear a keep up until then. It was not so easy for them to wear a keep while in the service, and this definitely made it much easier. I believe it did pass. So that was called the camouflage keep because it was made from those the, the the uniform cut out from a uniform of a U.S. Marine. That how is how kippas got uh, I guess famous. Well, you can just Google. You'll see many people wearing kippas and many non-Jewish people out of respect when they come to a synagogue. And we'll see a little later what's unique about wearing a kippa in a synagogue. But after the first idea, which is respect, humility, reverence for God. There is another, a second idea in the wearing of the kippah. Hello, Hank. We're happy you finally made it on. Source number seven. The next idea is called tzniut, which translates as modesty. Now, modesty is a very Jewish value. Source number seven. Had the Torah not been given, says the Talmud, we would have learned modesty from the cat. Now, I never had a cat as a pet. But apparently a cat which relieves itself discreetly and covers its excrement. The Torah praises the attribute of modesty. So a cat, I guess unlike a dog or other animals, uh, does it what it does its bodily needs in a very discreet kind of way, secretly covering it up and um, you know in, 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 a, in, a, in a hides when it does it, very modest about this. Doing it in a very respectful kind of way. And if the Torah would not teach us the value of tzniut, of modesty, we would have learned it from a cat. Because that is a Jewish trait. Now, modesty could be in many things. In how we behave, in how we speak, um, in how we dress as well. So, it's really probably a topic for itself. And Jody brought it up about you know, head coverings for women, that's probably uh, the, the wigs or handkerchiefs, that's probably more in that kind of topic about general modesty, how, how men and women should dress. And we'll save that for another lesson all about Jewish dress. But it has to do with the yarmulke as well, with the kippah, because let's understand at least one of the rules of modesty. What does modesty work? How does it work in, in dress? What is considered modesty? Source number Eight, one should not conduct himself back to the code of Jewish law, that important book that every Jewish home has or should have. One should not conduct himself in a shameless manner, not only while he is in company, but even while alone. There is a dignified way for a person, a human being who possesses a soul created in God's image to behave, not just in public, even alone, because you're never alone. We just said, the keeper reminds us that God is always here. The verse says, God's glory fills the entire earth. There's no place vacant, void of God. He should conduct himself modestly, or she should, of course, he and she, modestly and bashfully in the presence of God. 
one should not uncover even the slightest part of his body or her body that is usually covered by clothes. So your face can be uncovered, something which is the norm to be uncovered, like your hands, that can be uncovered. So that's one of the rules of modesty, that it can sometimes change depending on um, accepted practice, expected, accepted, respected, modest practice, and this is not just a Jewish law, you know, there are certain amusement parks or that have a dress code. Um, there's offices that have a certain dress code. If you're a big lawyer, you, you can't come in with your bathing suit. Or if you work in Congress or you're a politician, you got to dress a certain way. I believe recently in some state, there was some controversy about certain laws regarding dress. So even... Um, uh, not the Torah, not talking about Torah laws, there is a concept of respectful and modest dress for men, for women. So here's one of the rules that something which is usually normally covered, if it's uncovered, it is a lack of modesty. Modesty is a Jewish trait, not just a Jewish trait, a Jewish, a Jewish law to be modest in our dress, to be um, covering a parts of our body that are usually covered. Now, says the Maimonides, source number 9, Torah sages conduct themselves with exceptional modesty. They do not demean themselves and do not bare their heads or their body. So he gives us explicit reference to having a bare head in association with modesty. As the Code of Jewish Law spells it out more, walking bareheaded is considered immodest, because one thereby uncovers part of the body which is usually covered. So although some people have hair still on their head, but even with the hair, it's still considered uncovering body parts which is usually covered. So once it became um, accepted practice to cover our heads, uh, and for sure in certain countries where everybody, in certain times in history, when everybody would cover their head, so uncovering the head would be an act of immodesty, because if it's usually covered and now you're going bareheaded, that's not so modest. So here's it. That's another idea. Being, of course, it's related because the whole idea of modesty is related to being in the presence of God and having a certain self dignity for the soul that we possess. And, but it's just another part of this modesty. Source number ten which is quite interesting. Every morning in the Siddur, in the prayer book, there is a list of blessings that we say, thanking God. We thank God for restoring our soul to us. We say a blessing for opening up our eyes and allowing us uh, to see, to walk, When we put, uh, to thank God for uh, sh footwear, and uh, many other blessings that we say. One of the blessings is the blessing for head coverings. And it goes like this. Baruch atah Hashem, Elokeinu Melech HaOlam, Blessed are you, God Almighty, King of the Universe, excuse me, Oter Yisrael Betifara, who cloaks, who covers the people of Israel with splendor. Something like that. So, the question is, why in this blessing, unlike I think there's 15 blessings, uh, almost none of them mention the people of Israel, the word Israel, the Jewish people. It's opening our eyes. God opens everyone's eyes in the morning when they wake up. So, bless, blessing God who gives us eyesight. Blessing God who gives us the ability to walk. Why in this blessing, when it comes to head covering, there are a lot of people that cover their heads. So why, you know, up until uh, probably uh, Kennedy, 
in the 60s, uh, it was normal practice to wear a fedora. That's where uh, many Jewish men got the custom of wearing fedoras. The idea was a, was a hat, a head covering. Back in the day, it was a casket, you know, a, a cap. Uh, some wore the strimal, the fur hat, and some wore the fedoras because that was the the dress code in the 1920s, 1930s, and 40s, and even the 50s, wear gray, black hats, maybe with a feather. So, excuse me, so why here are we mentioning specifically in the blessing Israel? Source number 10, when he puts his hat on his head, the code of Jewish law tells us he should recite the blessing, and women should recite this too, Oter Yisrael Betifara. Why is the name Israel mentioned in this blessing and not in the others? For the hat serves a different purpose for the Jewish people than the other nations. For other nations, head coverings are worn only for their bodily benefits. It's fashion, comfort, uh, protection, warmth. Whereas for Jews, they also serve the purpose of modesty and holiness. The hat serves a spiritual, a religious purpose. Holiness, reminding us of God, and modesty. So in this blessing, you mentioned Israel because there's something unique about the Jewish head covering. We're dressing modest when we cover our heads. Now, it doesn't say all of this stuff in the Torah explicitly. It's not one of the 613 commandments. It's a custom... It is a Jewish practice, which it is unclear exactly when exactly it began. It seems that it was the practice way, from way back, you know, the times of our patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it, it sort of evolved, and it seems to be that it began as a pious act, like in the Talmud, Rav Huna, uh, Rav Nachman, as a child, he was told to cover his head. Perhaps it wasn't. It doesn't seem that this was the practice of every Jew to cover their heads at all times. But it became Jewish practice and eventually either was enacted or became, by osmosis, Jewish law. How does that work? Because Jewish customs, eventually, if this custom sort of is spread and accepted by all Jews across the board, or most Jews, then this becomes Law. Source number 11 gives us an insight into this concept. We're now on the second day of Shabbat on the Jewish calendar. We're just six weeks to the day away from Purim. It's six weeks the holiday of Purim, which is in the month of Adar. Now we're in the month of Shabbat. And yesterday was Rosh Chodesh, the first of the month. And this is a special day where the Torah says that on this day... About six weeks before the passing of Moses, he began his final sermon to the Jewish people. They were standing at the Jordan River, about to cross over into Israel, and Moses is told he's not going to cross over. So he gives a review of everything they went through, of all the commandments, and imploring, encouraging the Jewish people that once they settled the land of Israel, they should not learn from their pagan neighbors, from the idol worshippers, that the Canaanites that were living in Israel, they should be staunch uh, followers of the Torah and they should adhere to its laws. And he gives them this 
instruction. Source number 11. You shall come to the judge who will be in those days. He's talking about the future. According to the law they instruct you, you shall do. You shall not divert from the word they tell you either right or left. Moses understands that in future generations, there's going to be contemporary issues that come up and there are going to be future judges, sages, rabbis that are going to need to implement certain new kind of practices to preserve the Torah, to remind the Jews. Source number 12 says Maimonides, we are obligated to heed their words, the words of the sages in each generation, which were instituted as a safeguard for the Torah, to safeguard the Torah, that the Torah should not be forgotten or violated. So they instituted safeguards to help us remember the Torah, help us be more cautious as was necessary at a specific time. A person who transgresses their directives transgresses this negative commandment, which refers to the edicts, decrees, and customs which they instruct people at large to observe, to strengthen the faith, and perfect the world. So, Akipa is part of this. It's a Jewish custom that uh, definitely was practiced at, at some level way back, and at, there were... It was so incorporated in Jewish practice that there were those that sacrificed their lives or, or, or at least sacrificed, uh, put themselves in a painful situation in order to keep this tradition of having a kippah on their heads. There are many stories of religious Jews during the Holocaust which the Nazis would poke fun at and whip them and torture them and take off their kippahs and they would keep bending down and putting back their kippahs on their heads just to not be beer-headed for, uh, for, for, for a moment longer. One famous, very famous story, I'll say it briefly, is the story of this Slavita print house. So in the city of Slavita, I believe it's uh, in Ukraine, in 1839, there was a Jewish, it was probably the biggest Jewish printing house um, they, they, it was owned by uh, Hasids. His father was uh, the famous rabbi Pinchas of Koritz, and his son's name was Moshe. He owned this printing house, and he had two sons. One was Shmuel Abba, and one was Pinchas, and they worked together in this print house. And they had printed the Talmud, a beautiful set of the Talmud, and that was like the set that everybody was buying. And uh, they were very successful, of course. There were anti-Semites and um, people that did not, they envied the success of these Jews because the whole town sort of was dependent on this print house for their, for their uh, income. Everybody worked in some way or another in this print house, providing Jewish books and Jewish people are the people of the book. And uh, it was a big business. So there was this, uh, I don't know who it was, some guy, Ben Derevsky, I believe. And as is the case with Jew with Russian files, you can just look it up and do research. Everything is there. What happened 300 years ago is there somehow. And filed and archived away. So this was very heavily documented and you could read up about this story. So without going into all the details, these two brothers were accused falsely of murder because there was one worker in the factory that was very depressed and um, 
got into a, a bad argument with his wife and hung himself in the factory or in the synagogue of the somewhere in the vicinity of the print house and you know that case was laid to rest it was cleared by the doctor that this man suffered from depression and he was buried but sometime later this anti-semite uh, concocted a whole story that this guy was uh, murdered by the brothers because of some story and the Russians of course government uh, the czarist government jumped onto the story and for three years these brothers were held in prison tortured interrogated and eventually they could not come up with good evidence that they were the murderers but there was significant room for suspicion in their words and therefore they were to be exiled to Siberia for the rest of their lives but first they were to get um, I think it was called Spiesrotten it was a kind of um, punishment where they would have two rows of soldiers 250 soldiers uh, with whips leather whips in their hands and these two men would have Jewish men Hasidim would have to walk or run through this line of soldiers three times, I believe, getting a total of 1,500 lashes without, you know, uh, without a shirt on. And if they make it out alive, they would be exiled to Siberia for the rest of their lives. That was the verdict. Very, very sad. And this was carried out. And the night before, they were visited by some fellow Hasidim, and they requested that a minion, 10 Jewish men should be present, so or 10, 10, men, 10 Jewish people should be present, so it should be a real Kiddush Hashem, real sanctification of God's name, and um, they, they, they did so wearing their yarmulke. They actually requested that any blood which might come from them should be collected, and if they die, they should be buried with them. That's how... That's they uh, you know approached this with very level-headed. They both survived, and it took months and months for them to recuperate. Eventually, after like fifteen years, I believe they were uh, you know somewhat. I, I think I think they weren't and they were allowed to stay maybe in some sort of uh, home in Moscow or something like that. But I don't think they were exiled to Siberia in the end. They they, they were so ill. And uh, they laid unconscious for a few days. A long story, a very moving story. But here's the, the Yamaka part. Now, one of the brothers, I believe it was Pinchas, while he is walking or running through this line of soldiers, his Yamaka fell off. And he did not budge because his hands were chained. He couldn't pick up the Yamaka. And he would not walk bareheaded. And he stood there being whipped by the soldiers. For he would not walk even a step without his yarmulke. Until one of the soldiers realized what was going on and he was kind enough to put the yarmulke back on his head. That was a sanctification of God's name and really inspired Jewish people at the time to be observant of this Jewish practice of wearing a yarmulke. Let's move on to our next um, source, our third section. Another idea in the idea of wearing a kippah. And that is 
called Uniform. Source number 13. On account of four things, Israel was redeemed from Egypt. They retained their language, did not change their clothing, did not reveal secrets, and did not neglect circumcision. So in who, in what merit did the Jews merit to, in what deeds did the Jews merit to be freed from Egypt? Imagine, the Jewish people are in Egypt for 210 years. They're being whipped and enslaved. What merits did they have for which they were redeemed? Well, there are various versions to this teaching in the Midrash, but one version is that one of the things was that they did not change their clothing. They did not adapt to the Egyptian style. They kept up their distinct Jewish dress. So there's a Jewish dress. Source number 14, do not follow the statutes of the nation that I'm driving out before you. God tells the Jewish people that when they come to Israel, Jewish people are going to settle the land of Israel. It's a gift from God. And do not follow the statutes of those nations, those idol worshippers. Don't go in their ways. The verses, says Maimonides, these, these, the verse, and this is just one verse, there are many such verses in the Torah reminding the Jewish people that they should be distinct. What does it mean not to learn from their ways? The verses warn us not to try to resemble the Gentiles. Instead, the Jews should be separate from them and distinct in their dress and in their deeds as they are in their ideals and character traits. Just like there are Jewish values, and by now many Jewish values um, were adopted by all of humanity or much of humanity, values of life and faith and so on. But just as we are different, in our values, the Torah teaches us values, so too in our dress. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't wear shoes like everybody else wears shoes. There are a lot of details to this. But there is such an, such an idea that if something is a distinctly non-Jewish way of dressing, then Jews should not follow in that way. We have to remember who we are. And we wear a special uniform. Just like the mailman wears a uniform and the cross guard and uh, police officer why do they have to wear a uniform well we should be able to identify who they are and for them to remember who they are what their job is what they represent they can act in a certain way because they're wearing the uniform you know maybe out of uniform but if they're wearing the uniform they're on duty there's a certain Etiquette, there's a certain responsibility that they carry while they're on duty. So in these countries, source 15, when the non-Jews, where the non-Jews customarily go bareheaded, and the people of Israel are careful to cover their heads as an expression of modesty, here a person who walks or even sits bareheaded like a non-Jew transgresses the prohibition of following their statutes. So at least a certain point in history, he says in these countries where the Code of Jewish Law was written, uh, in a few hundred years ago. So if, and, and apparently at least a certain time in history, I'm not sure if this applies today, but definitely one element of the Yamaka is that at a certain point of history, in a certain place, it was specifically a non-Jewish custom, or at least a non, a, a, of other religions, to be bareheaded. You know, man ought to be bareheaded, especially when they're praying, especially in the house of worship, because... Um, 
man is created in the image of God, we shouldn't cover their head, whatever it is, whatever the reasoning might be. But if that is a uniquely non-Jewish custom, or uh, let's say a, a different religion's custom, to specifically have a beer head, be beer-headed, and the men specifically, that was the custom, to speci- take off your head. If you were wearing a head covering in the church or, or another house of worship, that was disrespectful. That you were looked, you were frowned upon. Take off your your head covering. So if that is a uniquely non-Jewish custom, then if a Jew goes bareheaded, he's following in, the, in their statutes, and therefore uh, it, it's contributed to Jewish men wearing kippahs. Not so much women, although we said before that women, married women, or widowed or divorced women, cover their heads as with a wig or a, or a kerchief, but even not married women, single girls or single women, perhaps the reason why it wasn't so observed was because in other religions, women always cover their heads. So if a Jewish girl would not cover their head, they're not going in, a, in the ways of other religions, of the non-Jews. But non-Jewish men, or religious non-Jewish men, specifically would uncover their heads. So if a Jewish man goes and uncovers his head, oh, you're doing something non-Jewish. Jewish men cover their head. The non-Jewish men, you know, make sure not to uncover their heads. But in other religions, the women would cover their heads. So there's no problem for a woman to go bareheaded. <clears throat> Of course, if she's not married. Once she's married, that's another issue. Source number 16. A uniform is a constant reminder of what the job entails. A uniform makes for a more professional worker. A uniform signifies that one works for the company. It reminds the person, it reminds others of what their job entails, who they stand for, what they represent. A kippah is our uniform. It's part of the Jewish dress. It reminds us about our identity and hopefully makes us think twice before we do anything questionable. Hey, you know, a police officer won't behave in a certain way, hopefully, when he's, wear, when he's in uh, uniform, when he's on duty. A yarmulke helps remind us we're always on duty. We're always on duty every day. We're fulfilling our mission. It builds our Jewish pride and gives us the courage to stand up for our values. You know, a couple of years ago, I think it was 2014, 2015, 2016, in France, there was a, a call from one from Jewish man that, uh, somewhat of a leader, I believe, that we should, the Jewish people should hide their kippah. They should wear a cap. They should, they shouldn't look distinctly, distinctively Jewish in, in the, in the streets. And there, there was, um, outcry and from i believe the the what is he the prime minister or whatever it is in france jewish people should feel comfortable they should be proud of who they are we have nothing to hide and there was a whole movement on the twitter hashtag uh everyone with a kippah people would go out i believe even non-jews to put on a kippah in support of jewish people wear a kippah and be proud of who we are. It's, 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 it's our dress. It reminds us of who we are. And it helps us. It helps others. And part of the Jewish dress. That's our uniform. Source number 17. It's like a wedding ring. You wear your ring. You might say, why do you need to wear your wedding ring? I mean, 
you don't know you're married, your wife doesn't remind you, your husband doesn't remind you. You know the joke, uh, the wife was complaining, how come you don't tell me, to her husband, how come you don't say I love me enough? I love you enough. The husband says, you know, when we stood at the chuppah, when we got married, I said I love you, and uh, if anything changes, I'll let you know, you know. <laughs> uh, I guess he learned his lesson fast, but why do we need to wear the wedding ring? Not wear, we don't have to, we don't, I don't wear a wedding ring, but what's the idea of a wedding ring, at least for, for women? A wedding ring is a sign that you belong to someone. If you see marriage as a burden, then you wear the ring like a ball and chain. You know, it's difficult. It's a burden. Why do I have to wear this? But if you are in a relationship that is deep and real, then you wear the ring with pride. Because the very existence of the ring means that there is someone out there that loves you more than anyone in the world. The kippah is our wedding ring. It's our sign. We wear it with pride because it symbolizes the Jewish people's deeply loving relationship with God. It's not like, oh boy, we got to do this nebach, you know. We were chosen to do all these mitzvahs, you know. Let me just get it done and forget about it the rest of the day. No, 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 no. This is a loving relationship we have with God. The kippah is our wedding ring. I'm proud. We are proud of our relationship with God. It's like a marriage. As the Kabbalah teaches us, there is a bond here. There's a relationship, a loving relationship between us and God Almighty. The kippah is part of that dress that reminds us. It's our uniform. And that's another idea of the yamaka. So we got reminding us of God, respect for God, humility. Number two, modesty, because if that part of our head is usually covered, then it goes into the laws of modesty. And number three, it's just the Jewish dress. Jewish way. And because non-Jewish practice, at least at some point in history, was for men to specifically go bareheaded, so covering our heads uh, is going in the Jewish way and not in the non-Jewish way. Reminding us that we have a unique mission. Source number 18. Let's wrap up with our final section. There are so many kinds of yarmulkes out there. Go to any kippah store. There's so many colors, so many varieties, so many materials. Some are like the Bukharian Jews that have a real big one. Some have velvet, some from leather, some are knitted, all kinds of kippahs. How about this one from Jerry Seinfeld? Or um, I think... Prince Williams, or some prince, I don't know, went to Israel and came to the Western Wall. So those are the plastic ones that you get when you come to the Western Wall in Jerusalem. So now let's talk about the Western Wall. Let's talk about synagogues. We talked until now about always wearing a kippah. But is there a specific time when it is most important to wear a kippah? Source number eight. I might, I should point out that <clears throat> okay, we'll get to that soon. Let's finish up here. Source 18. It is forbidden to utter God's name bareheaded. God's name specifically. We've got to do that with reverence, with respect, and not be bareheaded. A blessing should not be recited while one's head is uncovered. And in a blessing, you have God's name. Placing one's hand over one's head to cover it is sufficient as a distinctive sign, though not sufficient to enable one to mention God's name. 
So just putting a hand over the head for a moment, it's sufficient as a sign. But to say God's name, that doesn't work. You need to have source number 19. The hand and the head are parts of the same body. And one body is not considered as a covering for that same body. If another person places his hand over one's head, there is room for leniency because it's a different body. So you can have someone else place their hand over your head or get anything, a cap, a cover, a veil, anything, a kippah, yarmulke. Um, so that's specifically when saying God's name. So praying, saying a blessing should have a kippah for sure. Source number 20, these are the garments they shall make. Going back to the Torah, God gives uh, specifics how the Kohanes, the priests doing the service in the temple, should be dressed. Eight garments, or four for an ordinary Kohen, the high priest got eight, and he starts listing a Choshen, that's the breastplate, a robe, and a cap. Excuse me, a head covering was part of the dress of the Kohanes while they were in the ultimate synagogue in the Holy Temple. The priests were commanded to wear special clothes for glory and then they may serve in the temple. So we see that specifically, although the Torah does not say explicitly that all people should wear a kippah at all times, but we do see that part of the dress of the Kohanes was to wear a cap, was to wear a head covering. And... Source 21, prayer takes the place of the sacrifices. What were the priests busy doing in the temple all day? One of the most busy uh, things going on were offerings and sacrifices. And that's what the priests were busy with. And while doing so, they needed to wear a cap. So therefore, one month, and since prayer, nowadays that we don't have sacrifices, we once did a lesson on this, how prayer takes the place of sacrifices. One must therefore take care that Shmona Esrei, that's the Amida, the main part of the prayer, should be recited with devout intent, as is required when offering a sacrifice. That's why it said quietly, everyone can concentrate and focus on what they're saying. But so too, it is appropriate to have fine clothes set aside for prayer, recalling the priestly garments. Not everyone, however, can afford this expense. So it's not a must, but just like the priests when they did the service in the temple, they dressed in special garments, including a cap, so too, and we pray, which is in place of the sacrifices, we're each like the Kohen. We're bringing a sacrifice. We're coming close to God. So we dress in a certain way, and part of that dress is a kippah. Now, not everybody, I guess, was able to afford it. So many synagogues have those plastic kippahs or cheap kippahs, or nice kippahs in the synagogue for those that do not have one of their own and cannot afford it. Source number 22. The priests every day would stand in a circle in the shape of a bracelet and the appointed priest comes and removes the hats from one from the head of one of them and everyone knew that the count began from him. That whole system of figuring out which priest, which Cohen is going to do which job that day in the temple. Everybody wanted to have a chance. So they would all stand in a circle and then they would take the hat off one of them and he would start and everybody would put out, you know, fingers, one, two, I believe fingers and depending, uh, they would, and one person would pick a number and then they would count how many fingers are out and they started and then whoever it landed on, that would be the first Cohen to get the first job. But they would take off the head, the head covering of one of the coins. So the Talmud has a whole discussion there. It was, it took place outside of the t actual temple. Why? 
The answer is because in the temple you can't take the hat of one of the Kohen. That would be disgraceful, disrespectful to stand in the temple courtyard without a head covering, bareheaded. And we see from there that not just when we say a blessing, not just when we're uttering God's name and praying should we make sure to have a head covering, men and women, but just being in the synagogue, spending time in the house of God. And we studied once before that every synagogue is a miniature temple, a place where God's presence is more resting even you're coming for a wedding, for a Shabbos dinner, there should be head coverings. Source number 23. A certain man passed before Ravina, one of the later sages of the Talmud, and did not cover his head. Ravina said, how rude is this man, you know? Coming before a Torah sage, it was expected to behave in a more respectful manner by putting on a head covering, even though not everyone did at that time all day long. Rabbi Yirmiya said, perhaps he is from Masa Machasya. Maybe he's from that city where rabbis are common and therefore he's not so, he's, it's not so special to come to the rabbi. So there's a little bit of a custom in that place not to always have the head covering. Well, we definitely see from the source that it was expected that in a times and places where one needed to be more honorable, more respectful, the head covering was part of that dress. Finally, Source 24 says clearly in one of the codifiers, one is not allowed to enter a synagogue without covering his head. So definitely we should have a head covering. There may be times where it is sensible to cover the kippah, such as if one needs to enter a non-kosher facility because a visible kippah may give off the impression that the place is in fact kosher. So uh, you need the bathroom or for whatever reason, generally we try to stay away from non-kosher eateries. But if for whatever reason one does need to enter, perhaps he should try to hide the fact that he is a rabbi or religious because that can be misleading to somebody else coming under the impression that maybe this place is kosher because this guy with a kippah is going in there, probably kosher, and he's probably going to get a sandwich. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind, that although it is a uniform and a reminder for us, but that gives us a responsibility that we should not mislead anybody with our kippah. That wraps up our lesson about head coverings, kippahs, yarmulkes, and something that I wear 24-7. Even when I'm sleeping, miraculously, it stays on my head. There's no Velcro, I don't have the pins, but the yarmulkes sometimes, they just sort of get shaped to your head and uh, stays on. Well, better to have a kippah that covers a significant part of your head, that it's noticeable from all sides, and some would like to have it covering most of the head. Some, like Hasidim, will have a really tall one. They're called the Gerer Hasidim, mostly living in Israel, because their custom was to have, they have long curls, side burns, and they sometimes take it and twirl it under their kippah. So they have to have a tall, real dome on their head because where they come from, somewhere in uh, Russia or Hungary, um, you know, maybe it wasn't allowed to have sideburns as we discussed when we learned about uh, payas and they hid it under the kippah. So till today, that's their custom.
Um, some will have real big ones. Some will have smaller ones, like the previous Israeli prime minister. Um, what was his name? Bennett. I forgot his first name. He had a real tiny one, but at least that's something. So think about a yarmulke. Let's wear it more often. Let's wear it as much as we can. And be proud. Be proud of wearing a yarmulke. It will inspire others. Wearing a yarmulke. Yeah, when I go swimming, take a shower, of course, you can take it off. Um, But if, if that's not the case, then... A yarmulke should be worn. Now, getting back to the names, yarmulke, although maybe originally it was in Hungarian or Polish, I believe, or maybe Ukrainian, but it can also be broken into two words, yarei malka, which means fear of the king, fear of heaven, God Almighty. Yarmulke, it helps us remember God, as we said in the beginning. And same to kippah. Kippah means a dome, but it also can mean kafuf. Kafa means kfiya, means to to uh, to force, to bend, to bow. Because the kippah helps us be humble and bow before God, reminding us of this being, our Creator. So I think we covered all bases. Again, there's so much on this topic. It's just a bit of a glimpse into the topic of yarmulkes and kippah. God willing, we'll do another class sometime on specifically Jewish dress besides the kippah. And we'll talk about women covering their hair, wigs, why women cover their hair, why they wear dresses, and why men also <clears throat> dress in a certain way, men and women, all about getting dressed and clothing. That is another important topic. So stay tuned. Thank you for joining you enjoyed this let us know you can share this post so others can benefit from it as well it is definitely probably the most recognizable um dress code of jews a yarmulke you see on on, on the head the skull cap that little hat perched upon our heads have a wonderful rest of your day and thank you for joining